Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchangers, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Jill Hicks-Keaton and Kevin Kincannon, authors of the book, The Scripture Speak for Itself, The Museum of the Bible and the Politics of Interpretation. Jill, Kevin, uh, Kevin, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. So I'm Kevin Concannon, and I am a professor at the University of Southern California. And the area of my research generally is in the study of early Christianity, Christian origins, and the first couple centuries um, in which Christianity existed as a movement. And I'm Jill. I teach at the University of Oklahoma. I've just started my what I think to be my eighth year teaching biblical literature and religious studies at OU. My training is also in antiquity, uh, principally in Second Temple Judaism, which was the topic of my first book. And uh, now we're thinking about new things. (laughs) It's given your background uh, on, on the surface of it, writing a book about what is a, a modern day uh, uh, institution seems a little far afield. What led you to write this book? This has been a bit of a journey for us. So originally, <laughs> <laughs> I moved from the D.C. area to Oklahoma to take this job the year prior to the Museum of the Bible's opening in Washington, D.C. So I was like trading places with the museum, basically. And um, I read... Once I had taken up my post here in Oklahoma, an article by biblical scholars Joel Baden and Candida Moss entitled, Can Hobby Lobby Buy the Bible? And the conclusion of that was, well, they they seem to be trying to, and there's a giant warehouse of biblical antiquities right up the road from me, and they're flying in biblical scholars in my field from all over the world to come work on these antiquities. And I was uh, both intrigued and a bit horrified. because the conclusions that they seem to be drawing around these biblical antiquities and how they were deploying them were at odds with the historical conclusions and methods that I was teaching in a classroom at a flagship public institution. And so it, my interest began a bit out of curiosity, a bit out of, hey, this is a great chance to go do some research in Washington, D.C. The restaurants are amazing. And a bit, <laughs> <laughs> a bit of defending intellectual territory because I had students who would report going to, to church with the Green family, who are the, the founders and funders of this institution. And that's, that's where it started. And for me, that really what happened was I was talking with Jill a lot, and she couldn't talk about anything except the Museum of the Bible. <laughs> and the more that she True. talked about it, and the more I heard about it, the more I, as a scholar of early Christianity and the Bible, but also someone who cares about how people in my world use archaeological materials in their own reconstructions of the past, I started to get angry too. And I got into a, I got into this mindset of this was kind of a turf war between um, a set of moneyed interests and a field that I felt um, like I wanted to, to um, defend. But it, 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 oh, go ahead. Well, 
I, I want to say that that's where it started, but it's not where it ended. So the museum <laughs> has been open for nearly five years now. And uh, I think that for both of us, that we realized as we were engaged in this research and in conversation with other people who were sort of like, what the hell are you doing? Um, we realized that there was much more to be done than engage the Greens or other Museum of the Bible representatives as conversation partners. And so this book is actually a departure from previous writing that both of us have done on the museum because we've changed from thinking about this as a turf war towards um, imagining the book or not even imagining it, writing a book that is a contribution to American religious history and also uh, taking Vincent Wimbush's concept of scripturalization and describing how people make certain texts scriptural, allied with political interests and, uh, and money. Yeah, and this, and this, is, this, 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 this is, to build on Joel's point, this is something that we, we did early on and we, we edited a volume together on the museum with, um, uh, that involved a number of other um, biblical scholars and scholars of American religious history that came out in 2019. And, and there, I think we were in a kind of defensive mode, trying to defend our field from this, what felt like an incursion. And um, we really did take a kind of long look at that approach, which ended up we thought ended up really replicating certain kinds of ostensibly intra-Protestant debates about the Bible and who gets to interpret it and how it should be interpreted. And we wanted to move away from that mm -hmm. to think about, um, as, as Jill said, how do people make sacred scriptures uh, and, and what goes into that process? And we found in, when we, when we were, we shifted our orientation that we found a project that that ultimately was more interesting and more fruitful that that pushed us to see what we were concerned about or what we were interested in as part of a longer history of uh, evangelical institution building in American religious history and also allowed us to turn a lens back on our own field in the, instead of defending it actually take up a critical position on the field in which we were both trained in biblical studies uh, to, to look at biblical studies as, as something that also needed to switch its orientations or, re, or, or rethink its priorities uh, in ways that, that uh, we think have been really fruitful. Well, you've, you know, it is, and that's one of the things I thought was so fascinating about your book is the way that you, you know, talk about how the museum presents the Bible in various ways and, and, and how that interacts with the, what we know about it today. But before we get into that, I, I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about the museum itself. For those who are a little unfamiliar with the Museum of the Bible, if you could provide us with, with, with a bit of context and, and, and a description with uh, how the two of you uh, engage with it in terms of uh, exploring it and, and, and understanding it. Sure. So the Museum of the Bible is a privately owned institution, but it's near the Smithsonian Institutes and in close to the National Mall in Washington, D.C. So it it appears that it used to be free. It's not free anymore, but it was sort of imitating um, the public institutions of national memory. And uh, it, it feels kind of like a, a, a fancy museum. And part of their PR campaign when they were putting this museum together 
was that they were going to let the Bible speak for itself, um, which is in part how we got the title for this book. The answer is no, by the way, but it's more complicated too. So you still need to read the book. (laughs) Um, And and, uh, so what we focus on in our description of the museum is that a museum is constructed just like the Bible is always interpreted. And so we take readers through a tour of what happens on the first floor in the museum to illustrate that this is, there's a series of decisions that just like in all museums, curators have made to engage visitors in the subject material. And I'll mention one aspect of that here, which is that there's a bookshop There's a coffee shop. It feels a little bit like a megachurch when you walk in or sort of a modern day cathedral. And there's also a what I like to call a Christian Chuck E. Cheese, which is for the kids. (laughs) You know, they play skee-ball and they can imitate Samson in his moment of death, pushing pillars away like a strong hero. Um, and that's combined with both uh, a series of, of biblical antiquities that serve to authenticate the sort of narratives that are offered in the museum by the curators and designers, um, and also a whole series of facsimiles that are, are designed to invoke the aura of antiquity without actually giving it to you there in the museum. And just, to, and just to round out that description of what else happens in the museum, there are, a, there are three permanent uh, exhibitions on three different floors. So the first floor, as we said, has, the, has a coffee shop, has a bookstore, has the Chuck E. Cheese area. The second floor has uh, an exhibits focused on the impact of the Bible, um, both in the, in the United States and in the globe. Um, and the third floor has a series of um, interactive experiences that are about the narrative of the Bible. So the Hebrew Bible, the, a, a, a recreated Nazareth village where you can walk around with actors talking to you, um, a film that purports to narrate the New Testament to you. Uh, and then on the the fourth floor, there is a history of the Bible floor. This is where a lot of the museum's biblical um, artifacts are presented and many, many facsimiles of biblical artifacts, uh, along with a exhibit on Bible translation. And then um, on the other floors of the museum, there are there are um, there's a theater. There is a uh, permanent exhibit um, from the Israeli Antiquities Authority, uh, and then there is a um, a restaurant uh, called Mana and a biblical garden on the on the roof. And you can see, by the way, the the United States Capitol from the interior of the museum. So it's situated sort of right in the heart of political power. Hmm. It's it, it's a really fascinating the way that the the two of you uh, you know examine these various floors and how they uh, present the Bible in various ways and, and, and how that uh, relates to what we uh, know of uh, historically, archaeologically uh, about the Bible. And you situated this within the context of, of what you label white evangelicalism. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit what you uh, how you define this term and, and how it reflects the history of uh, of Christian religion in the United States and, and, and how that informs our understanding of, of, the, of the museum itself. Kevin's going to take this question, but I can't help but note that while we 
um, have just described what the museum itself presents these exhibits as being called, we really endeavor to re-describe them in terms of the work that they're doing in producing particular narratives and feelings about what we call the white evangelical Bible. And that white evangelical Bible is, is, is as you know, is connected to um, this category of white evangelicalism. And so in writing the book, we um, decided to treat the museum as a white evangelical institution. And we did so because we, we found that in our earlier contestations about the museum, in our earlier writings, we, were, we felt like we were, we were arguing about whether the institution was evangelical or not, and whether that kept it from being something, uh, an institution that could contribute to or be a dialogue partner in biblical studies. And we found that uh, distinction to be particularly unhelpful analytically. And so we, we treat the museum as what we call a white evangelical institution. And white evangelicalism is a term that is being used quite a lot right now in our national discourse. Um, it often connects to questions around uh, a large voting block for the Republican Party or to questions around Christian nationalism. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we defined that term very clearly for ourselves and what we were talking about. So white evangelicalism to us is not a way of saying that all evangelicals are white or that all um, what that or that there's some kind of, you know, like um, demographic component of this uh, identity. But that what we mean by white evangelicalism is that we're def- we're referring to a discrete sect within American um, Protestantism that was forged out of the building of a series of institutions, not all of which we were able to cover in the book, though we cover some of them, some of the more important ones, um, that largely begins to crystallize in the period after the Civil War or come together as a set of institutions uh, and that expands and modifies itself and builds on itself um, up until really right around the, the civil rights movement, which we think catalyzed um, the formation of what people now tend to think of as white evangelicalism in a kind of popular sense. And our argument is that white evangelicalism is really a, a, a product of these institutions that have been paid for by elite interests that m- amplify and repeat and transform white evangelical theology. Because one of the things that we're trying to get away from uh, and this is something that we're we were doing in conversation with other scholars of American evangelicalism, is to get away from the idea that evangelicals are the people who believe X, Y, and Z, because those beliefs, while they are often held by people who identify as evangelical, are also themselves constructed, and they are. Um, they are have a modern history to them. They're not the ways in which all Christians have thought at all times. So we want to talk about how those beliefs emerge as constitutive of evangelical identity for some people. And they do so through this institutional network that uh, repeats them, amplifies them, resonates them uh, over the course of the last century or so. We tell this story in a chapter called provenance, which is a word that's been attached to the Museum of the Bible in scandals for the last several years because of the 
um, demonstration that many of the antiquities in the collection were looted uh, and have been repatriated or are earmarked for repatriation. Um, but we are less interested in the provenance of the artifacts. We're happy to let other scholars think about that uh, and learn from them. We play with this word provenance to describe the provenance of the museum as a Bible uh, and locating it as uh, a recent iteration or addition to the string of white evangelical institutions that were formed over the course of the 20th century and that we can still see being formed now to amplify evangelical ideology. And, and that's one of the things I thought was so fascinating about the book is, is how you use the museum as a portal to uh, examine this and, 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 and how you do so in, in, in various uh, ways. I, I was especially struck by your discussion of the goodness of the Bible. And, and how it, it presents that within the context of American history. The Bible is, is something that, ha, that has been present throughout so much of American history. And what you get in the uh, presentation, in, in, the presentation in, in the museum is a particular interpretation of it. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate upon how the museum presents the goodness of the Bible within that context of American history. Sure. So the Bible in the museum is presented as an agent of positive social change. And this is amplified for visitors by the, the museum having a, a sort of very positive, coercively fun feel um, where it's like good vibes, you know, are happening here about the Bible. And in signage, you can trace a a story where, and um, some of this work has been done by another biblical scholar, Margaret Mitchell, who's done a helpful analysis of the museum. She points out that where the Bible, or excuse me, where social change has been retrospectively deemed positive, the Bible's given credit for it. So for example, civil rights or abolition in American history. But when the Bible is not on that right side of retrospective history. The signage does work to disentangle the Bible from culpability. So for example, the Bible gets used in the language of the signage in the museum for abolition. It gets misused or abused when it's being used in support of slavery. And there's the exhibit on American history, the Bible in American history ends in the 1980s, such that, uh, which we think might be a deliberate closing to the exhibit so that they don't need to entertain the Bible's use in social movements since the 1980s that might run counter to what white evangelicals, conservative white evangelicals see as good. So for example, in um, use by LGBTQ rights um, or uh, abortion rights and so forth. They don't have to intervene in those social issues. They're able to uh, have the Bible be on the right side of history on settled social issues. I, I was especially struck by your engagement with this topic when it comes to American slavery. And I, I actually, that's where I, I was, I was, uh, you know, really you know, fascinated to read those pages because as you uh, explained in the book that, that you know, 
not only do they you know situate on on on, on the positive side and ignore it, but it, in doing so, they really misrepresent uh, the American history. As as you point out, you know during the antebellum era, the the Bible was frequently cited as a way of supporting slavery and the passages were provided uh you know christianity was 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 used as as or as, as, as you know viewed by by some slave owners as a way of of keeping the slaves happy and and how the discussion just completely ignores this there, there this and, and that's where i really began to appreciate what you were what the two of you were talking about in terms of how it's not a a, a sense of here's the full picture for for a complete understanding it's more we're going to shade this in a way so that you walk away you know feeling happy about the bible right the bible can't be morally deficient in order for it to be commended as being at the center of um, moral guidance, which I think is an aspiration of white evangelicals uh, regarding the Bible in the public square. So that is sort of a logical outflow of how white evangelicals see what the Bible is, that it's a positive communication from a deity that is intended to lead to the benevolent things for all humankind, if only humans would stop using it incorrectly. Um, but the incorrect sides often only reveal themselves in retrospect. And uh, and so it makes sense why there would be selective history telling here to support a stridently benevolent Bible. And this and this gets us at, at what the point of all that work is. I mean, on the one hand, there is a kind of affective um, Bible like boosterism that is behind this, the idea that we don't want the Bible to have been wrong. We don't want it to be morally deficient. But the other side of that argument is that if the Bible is always good and is always good for society, then why aren't we using the Bible to say, organize our society? And part of the argument from, that underlies the history, the, the, the history of the Bible in the US exhibit is that um, America has done well when the Bible has been allowed to do its work and it has been led astray when the Bible has not been allowed to do its work. And in that sense, what's happening here is, is an argument about that, that centers Christian nationalism, even though those words are not there and that is not sort of presented to us directly in the exhibits. The implication is that... Um, the Bible has been here since the beginning of U.S. history, and it has done good work when it's been left to its own devices. And so readers leave, and they actually end up, you leave that section of the exhibit prompted to go and fill out a whole bunch of, of um, questionnaires that are digital. And the, the, the questions, some of which we talk about in the book, are, are leading questions, leading questions about um, you know, what role the Bible should have in our society. And you would be hard pressed to leave that exhibit not thinking, oh, yeah, it would be good if, you know, Christian theology and the Christian Bible was um, was in charge, um, that there would be a kind of Christian identity to the United States. It would be hard to leave the exhibit without getting that impression. But there's in essence, a that if, the, if the Bible was our compass, it, it could never lead us astray. Mm-hmm. But Mark, there is a fascinating um, sort of flipping of the script that happens in the same exhibit, because alongside the theme, biblical authority is one called religious liberty or religious freedom. And it took us a while to think through how do those two ideas combine? Because if the if the Bible is on the right side of history 
and can be used as a moral guide and should be centered in American civic life. Why is there also a, a running theme through this exhibit simultaneously interwoven of religious freedom? You would think that if you want the Bible as an authority, you don't want to give people religious freedom. I, I moot the idea that the Bible does not actually offer religious freedom as an option. It is making a singular claim on religious lives of people. And, and so what we, how we redescribe this exhibit is that it's a retrospective authorization of white evangelical hegemony um, because they're moving between these two ideas, biblical authority, when um, they're in the more um, moral, w- when they're presenting themselves and the Bible as morally just and commendable. Um, but then when they see that the Bible is not, as they interpret it, is not going to be used as a moral guide, then they want religious freedom. And so that flipping of the script or moving, negotiating back and forth between two positions is a way to maintain um, moral centrality for white evangelicalism. Now, the you know this assumption of the goodness of the Bible, this presentation of the goodness of the Bible, is there's this implicit uh, assumption that the Bible in itself is you know can be trusted. It's 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 a guide that is you know accurate, and and that gets to another aspect of the presentation of the Bible in the museum that you engage with. with which is the trustworthiness of it. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about that and, and, and how the Bible, how the museum, you know, stages the presentation in a way to, you know, make this argument that the Bible is a, a document or a, a, a work that can be, you know, trusted in, in, in all its particulars. Yeah, so this is the this this takes us to the history of the Bible floor. So this is on the fourth floor of the museum, and this is a uh, an exhibit that is that we 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 puzzled over this for a long time. This this exhibit, um, the exhibit, more or less, if you follow it in, in terms of the plan of the layout of the museum, you you walk in through a, a some signage that that tells you about the history of the Bible and and calls this the path. It's path to universal access, and um, you start out in uh, ancient Mesopotamia. You see artifacts from the ancient Near East, lots and lots of facsimiles, and we can maybe come back to the facsimile question later. Um, and then you kind of walk through um, the history of ancient uh, Israel and into the Second Temple period, and you see um, an exhibit to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then you transition into early Christian texts. Um, there's a there's a kind of a weird detour on the left into um, into modern translation modern editions of the Bible and then you basically follow the Bible as it's then translated and then copied and moved through late antiquity into the Middle Ages, uh, then to the Renaissance and the uh, Protestant Reformation, which is sort of a big cr- crux turning point um, in the museum's narration. And eventually you find your way at the end of this exhibit, as you've kind of come up to the modern period, you end in this exhibit called Illuminations, which is a a joint partnership between the museum and several Bible translation um, nonprofits that um, talks about how many languages the Bible has been translated into and how many languages it has left to be translated into in, in the context of Protestant missionizing efforts. 
And so the, the museum takes you through a history of the Bible that is really about how did the Bible go from, well, the, the starting point is a little unclear, um, but how does it get us to the, um, its universal distribution and make us anxious about that, but also to celebrate it? And so the trustworthiness of the Bible comes into play in, in terms of that hysterical, um, historical narration that happens before that. How do, does the Bible, which really only makes sense in this context, if it is, if it is kind of conceptualized as a pre-existing divine word, how does that divine word get into human history and then become universally available in modernity? And how does it stay the same throughout that process? And so what we what we what eventually helped us to make sense of the f- whole floor is that the the floor is not really a history of the Bible. It's the history of the technologies that have ensured the divine words trustworthiness as it has been transmitted over time through human history. And that it can be the thing that's being translated now into the languages of the world is the same as that which came into the world um, in antiquity. And it's the Bible's trustworthiness is another, alongside its benevolence, logical imperative that is built into the museum's narrative because the Bible is treated along these lines as a resource to which everybody should want others to have access globally. And so we make the point that um, in order for us to want, if we're going to buy into the narrative's desire, for the Bible to be universally accessible, globally distributed in languages that people can understand, it has to be seen as a positive and trustworthy um, set of texts. So you wouldn't you wouldn't call like volcanic ash something that we need to distribute to everyone. That's bad. Um, the Bible in the museum is treated more like water. This is a resource that we want everybody to have. And uh, it has to be both good and trustworthy in order for that desire to make any sense. And I also wanted to add, and this is something that Kevin might want to talk more about, that this the museum is also capitalizing on a historic connection in evangelical Christianity of biblical artifacts to trustworthiness. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So part of what the museum stages for you as you go through the exhibits are um, uh, ancient artifacts, which are um, in terms of the signage, in terms of the, the way in which they're connected to the overall argument of the floor are designed to help you feel connected um, between mater- the material in front of you and the text that it's meant to elucidate. So the idea here is that is that this object is is tied to a kind of proof that the Bible is historically accurate. And so the museum um, has a series of these artifacts as you move through the particularly the early stages of its history of the Bible. And those um, artifacts are 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 evidence for the Bible's trustworthiness and the Bible's um, historical reliability. And in, in, a, in, one, in one way, the museum is um, interesting in the sense that it, it, it has 
this huge collection, at least that's been how it has been reported, that the museum has spent a lot of money on building a giant collection of artifacts. But when you walk through the, particularly the, the early stages of the history floor, you see tons and tons of replicas, um, which means that the museum's collecting practices, um, even as scandal plagued as they have been, were not sufficient to be able to create a story out of those artifacts that they wanted to tell. And so the museum has invested money in buying replicas of artifacts to be able to tell a particular kind of story. And um, the, that story has um, is designed to take you through how um, ancient scribes were very careful about translating the Bible very accurately. And it was important to make collections of texts and those collections then give a durability to the word in a different way. And then there is eventually like translation processes that are represented as being word for word and thus giving you uh, reliability as the text is translated uh, from language to language. And so these artifacts are there as a, as a way of, reinforcing this larger narrative of the Bible's reliability. Even though they're artificial and, and replicas. <laughs> right. And, and the thing is, is that you, you know, a lot of the replicas are, are good enough to where you wouldn't notice mm-hmm. it unless you read the signage carefully. Mm-hmm. And and there are, there are some times where the signage kind of, it's unclear whether it's actually a facsimile or not in terms of how it's, it's, sign it signed. So the facsimile part or the replica part is not always exactly clear in the signage and they look good enough to people who are not like super Bible nerds um, to probably pass as actual documents or as actual material objects that um, are the real, the real deal. I remember my first time in the museum of the Bible thinking and pointing out to a curator that uh, there's really Judaisms that existed around the time of the advent of Christianity, uh, of which, or so Christianity began as a form of Judaism. I remember thinking and commenting that really other forms of Second Temple period Judaism are not represented at all. It's as if they do not exist. And uh, a curator said to me that, well, we don't have anything in our collection that would illustrate the existence of other Second Temple period sects of Judaism. And I I felt this sort of deep sense of irony that um, they were able to fabricate facsimiles and replicas (laughs) for other historical, um, you know, it was like for what was convenient for the story that wanted to be told. The the use of of the uh, facsimiles and the replicas is is, uh, in itself part of this broader presentation that you talk about. You, you have an entire chapter where you talk about the, the transmedial nature of the Bible that the museum presents. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that. You know, what, what exactly, how exactly do we see this transmedial presentation and, and what you've already talked about a couple of the forms, but how, how are they interconnected to present a single narrative? Well, we're saying transmedial, which is a little bit of a fancy way of saying that in some places it feels like a theme park at this museum. Um, so you, there's an award-winning, uh, for like museum exhibits, award-winning exhibit on the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. That is a 30-minute to 45-minute walkthrough of a story of the Hebrew Bible. And, you know, it has like a retracting wall and uh, loud noises and bright lights. And 
Um, we went through this exhibit multiple times thinking about the narration and thought to ultimately came to the conclusion that, you know, this really sounds like the Apostle Paul narrating the Old Testament. And um, signage sort of indicates that this is a story that represents Jews and Protestant Christians and Catholic Christians, um, even though the Hebrew Bible and Old Testament are fundamentally different things from one another, and uh, the Protestant Old Testament and the Catholic Old Testament are fundamentally different things from one another. Um, But the walkthrough experience of this exhibit means that it's engaging all of your senses as the visitor. So you're hearing, you're seeing, your body is entering the story. And um, what we argue is that the effect of that exhibit is that it leaves you looking for Jesus. And when you leave that exhibit, you end up in a situation where you're options, at least on that floor, are to go walk into the world of Jesus of Nazareth, which is a, uh, a reconstruction of a first century uh, Galilean village um, with actors portraying ancient Jews. Um, or you can walk into the uh, theater of the New Testament and watch a film of the New Testament um, represented in a kind of classic Hollywood uh, red velvet curtain kind of environment. Um, and in both of those exhibits, Jesus is also strangely missing. So when you walk around Nazareth Village, the uh, the script that seems to be played out by the actors is to say, to get you eventually to sort of hear like, oh, well, there's this guy named Jesus who who was causing, stirring up trouble in our town and we, we had to chase him out and really don't know what he was talking about. Um, they and- never break character, by the way. You you take want to take a selfie with them and they'll say something like, what is this strange mirror device? And um, I couldn't get a straight answer out of one of them one time whether they have health care offered to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the world of Jesus of Nazareth is this sort of, it's this sort of strange, you know, like uh, Colonial Williamsburg um, exhibit that's confined to this large room on that, on that floor. And, um, and, and you're just constantly being directed to like Jesus who is, who was from there, but isn't still absent. Um, and when you get to, if you eventually go and watch the, the film in the New Testament, um, in the New Testament, the New Testament film, you end up being told there that Jesus is the answer to the problem that was presented to you at the Hebrew Bible walkthrough exhibit, which is that um, human sin has alienated humanity from God. And Jesus is the answer to that. And so the whole floor is really a, a kind of implicit argument for how Jesus is actually the ultimate point of the story of the Hebrew, of the of the Bible as as it is constructed here, the the Bible, um, what we're calling the white evangelical Bible. And we think that that how the the, the transmedial nature of the Bible of these exhibits it, it works together to cultivate in visitors a desire. For Jesus, so this is an affective rather than logical sort of argument. And and part of part of where this is 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 coming from, and part of what part of what animated us to take this this turn is that um, one of the one of the things that we think is important to emphasize as biblical scholars, and and both to others and to people who do biblical scholarship, is that um, the Bible is not really a thing. Um, there are Bibles. Um, there are biblical texts, there are biblical documents, there are biblical collections. And 
they're material things. They are real objects in the world. And people's interaction with those real objects um, takes on, a, is, is, is um, defined by a whole sensory apparatus. Like you don't, we don't just engage with the Bible as text. We engage it with a, we engage the Bible as text that is mediated through material forms. And so on the one hand, you know, paying attention to sort of like the, 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 the nature of, or the, 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 or the layout of your printed Bible, the text that's printed there, the, the paratextual notes, the way in which it's bound, its connection to your family history or whatever is an important way of thinking about how the Bible you have in front of you influences what you, how you read that Bible. Um, but we can take that, and we do take that in the book, as a way of thinking about the entirety of this museum, that this whole museum is really a Bible. It is an argument for, it is a constructed Bible that you experience in an embodied way. And so it is a Bible like, like the Bible that you have in front of you when you're reading. It is a Bible that confronts all of your senses and that confronts you in an embodied way. And so the museum is uh, less an actual story of the Bible than it is a immersion in a Bible that has embedded in that an argument for how you should leave feeling about as well as thinking about what that definite article on in the museum of the Bible is is a reference to. Now, this is something that you can be seen as perhaps a a, a white evangelical, uh, you know, idea, but as you explained in, in, in your final chapter, it, it's actually reflecting a, a, a particular vision by the the uh, by the by the family behind the museum, which is which is the Green family. And I thought this was a very interesting chapter because it picks up on some of the uh, threads that you set out in the first chapter about how so much of white evangelicalism in American history is tied to the vision and the resources of very wealthy individuals who were very passionate about this project. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how the museum embodies what the Greens, uh, you know, uh, the, the, what the Greens have articulated in, in other ways about Christianity and, and how it, it serves in, in, in a sense as a way of, of them, uh, you know, identifying their place in in the movement in America today. Sure. So we do a close analysis of of Twitter feeds and books that have been published, authored by the Green family, by Christian presses, where the family members are representing themselves as, quote unquote, the founding family of the Museum of the Bible. And, And what we argue is that this is an authorizer for the distribution of their ideas about the Bible and how it should be functioning in American civic life. Um, That the museum has become sort of a platform, an authorizing device, a megaphone, um, particularly for the Green family's conceptions of the Bible, and that that has taken material form through a series of speeches and, and books that have been published. One of the things that we analyzes how in those books the story of the Museum of the Bible's coming to be is narrated. And we point out that it's narrated as a discovery story. Um, and so such that how they talk about it is that the museum as something that um, happened to them 
right? That like presumably that God was involved in producing, that this was not something of their own initiative um, or something that they aspired to. It was rather something um, that was sort of passive for them that, and the implication is that deity is involved here. And, uh, and that is connected to how the, to the trustworthiness and the goodness of the Bible, because they're discovering something that was already out there to find. And it just so happens to coincide in many ways with the, the understanding of the Bible that has been articulated in publications under the Greens' names. So what we do in chapter five is we develop this concept called biblical capital, um, where I, I think this is kind of a fun play on words. Do you want to do board you? Sure, we can okay. talk about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, we, we developed this category, this term biblical capital out of an engagement with this uh, French sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu. And Bourdieu... It's uh, more fun than it sounds. It's more fun than it sounds. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, it comes from, we, we've all heard that phrase social capital. I mean, this is what, and this is ultimately the, the kind of popular version of how Bourdieu's work has manifested itself. And you know, social capital is that way we talk about, well, there's actual material capital, there's money, right? We understand how that works. And then there's social capital. You know, people develop their, their social capital in terms of like authenticity or followers on Instagram or their style or whatever. There's all sorts of different ways in which we can talk about people who have social capital, people who are cool or who have gravitas or however you want to talk about it. Who donate things. Right. And, and so, um, but social capital is always a kind of shell game. It is a transmutation of something material into something that is conceptual and then redounds back to the material. And so like say uh, uh, someone who uh, gives money to a museum Right. They um, they give money to that museum and then the museum puts them on the wall. Right. They get um, they get seen as a, as a donor, name. a famous donor you know, to the wall or they get their name on a building at a college campus. Right. So that's a transmutation of money into a social capital. And every trans every form of social capital has a different set of dynamics to it. And when we talk about biblical capital, what we mean here is that the biblical capital is accrued when you, someone gives money in the service of supporting the Bible as it is conceptualized. So donating money to a, uh, a missionary organization, building a museum of the Bible, um, or fighting a Supreme Court case. And um, what happens then is that capital, the material capital, is transformed into what we call biblical capital. You're now um, someone who has fought for the Bible, who has demonstrated devotion to the Bible. And that has, that has its own kind of cur is currency within white evangelicalism. But what has to happen in the midst of all that is there also has to be a kind of occlusion or a, a hiddenness of the transaction that happened. So when the Greens talk about their discovery of the, these manuscripts, or they talk about their, um, their, or they write about their story of, of becoming the founders of this museum, as, as Jill noted, they're often talking about how they kind of passively followed, they write about how they kind of, in the story, these narratives, they write about how they passively followed the guide of their, of their deity. What they don't talk about 
is all the money that they spent and where they got the money from. And so that is that that is hidden in these narratives um, because it would disrupt the the transactional nature of how material capital is transformed into biblical capital. And this is not this is not something that only happens in biblical capital. It happens in all sorts of benefaction contexts is the amount of money is usually not described so that the um, the transactional nature that cannot look so crass. And that's 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 what that disrupts the magical properties of the construction of social capital. So we're interested in not only the idea that the Bible doesn't speak for itself, but money doesn't either. And we're tracing how money is here made to speak through a process of exchange. Um, But then we're also tracing through close analysis of publications and speeches done by the Green family. We're tracing how they're expending that biblical capital as well. Um, So the ideas that are uh, about the Bible that are being presented in these publications and then authorized by grounding it in the construction of the Museum of the Bible. Hmm. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, my uh, new book that I'm working on right now is uh, actually inspired by thinking about the Museum of the Bible's presentation of the Bible as the good book. Um, and so I'm researching more broadly how white evangelicals construct a Bible that is ever benevolent. And um, I'm most interested in how misogyny gets scripturalized in Um, stories that white evangelicals tell that are attempting to disentangle the Bible from patriarchy. So there's a lot of creative negotiations that are required in order to save the Bible. Uh, And I'm arguing that white evangelicals are saving the Bible in order to save themselves uh, in a and sort of defend their own moral authority. And that accidentally, there's actually a lot of misogyny that comes out in these um, saving the Bible. And I hesitate to sort of say exactly what I'm working on because it's not entirely clear to me what I'm focusing on right now. Um, I finished a book that came out last year on um, modern attempts to uh, to rehabilitate the writings of the Apostle Paul, who wrote a large chunk of the New Testament. Um, and I'm kind of variously bouncing around right now between interest in the Bible and, and detective fiction, um, ancient Christian networks, and uh, studies of further studies in white insti- white evangelical institution building, particularly around um, the ideas connected to dispensationalism um, or kind of end times theology. So I'm kind of bouncing around between some things. But as I'm doing that, you're always able to find me at Kevin Concannon on Twitter or at my website, KevinConcannon.com. So what you're working on is your Twitter feed right now. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> Him and thousands of other Americans. <laughs> Very, very important to cultivate that. Well, well, Kevin, Jill, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedules to speak with us. I hope both of you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, you too.